Hey friends, and welcome to the Nutrition Digested podcast. This podcast is for anyone interested in learning about food and nutrition. Please join me each week as I dive into the latest evidence-based research in the nutrition field. If you've ever wondered about fad diets, what is myth versus fact, or just a lover of food, this is the podcast for you. If you enjoy this episode, please take a screenshot and post to your social media and tag me so I know you're listening. This is one way you can support me and help others learn about nutrition too. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to um, the next episode on inflammation. I know I've um, touched up on this on my Instagram and talking about how I've changed my Instagram handle to inflammation um, underscore nutrition. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should check it out. It's inflammation underscore nutrition. And the reason why I've become so passionate about this subject is because I didn't know anything about inflammation or how it impacted health until about two years ago. And so I really wanted to start this podcast off by kind of talking about this um, issue that I had that I have really not talked about. I don't even really talk about it with my friends. I definitely didn't share it on social media. I did share it on Twitter when I had one, but I haven't had Twitter Twitter in a really long time. So for anyone that was maybe friends with me on Twitter in like 2016, probably um, saw me tweet about this maybe a couple of times. But anyway, we're going to talk about exactly what went on. So in May of 2016, I had this sudden nerve pain in my right jaw and it was, I didn't really know it was nerve pain at the time, but it was just this almost like popping and then this radiating um, pain that would go down the side of my jaw and up the side of my face and it just radiated along my jawline, my cheekbone, and forehead. And at the time, I didn't know it was trigeminal neuralgia, but this pain was so excruciating and I wasn't able to speak, I wasn't able to move my mouth. Um, And even when gusts of wind would hit my face, it would cause a flare-up of the pain. And anytime it happened, I had to like hold something and you could tell that like I would just I would go frozen like my eyes would just stay wide and like I would just pause like trying to just not do anything and hopefully it would just go away. So if I didn't speak and I didn't do anything and I just laid there, then it usually wasn't there. I didn't have a problem with it. So it was really scary and it lasted about a week and then it went away and I went to see my dentist immediately because I thought it was a tooth, you know, slash jaw issue, which kind of makes sense, right? You're, this is where the source of it feels. So I thought it was in my tooth. I thought there was something else going on. So I went to the dentist and, um, he didn't find anything. He, um, I'm trying to think, sorry, it's kind of a long time ago. He didn't find anything. They did x-rays. They didn't see anything, you know, thinking maybe there was like an infection going on. Um, yeah, they didn't find anything. So fast forward to five months later and I was living down in San Diego at this time. I had another flare up and, um, during this time between these two flare ups, you know, I was researching, my parents were researching, like we were trying to figure out everything and, and we had this thing called TMJ that would come up. And I know a lot of people that have TMJ and they were talking about how it's, you know, tightening of jaw, you know, some people grind their teeth at night, it causes it, all this type of stuff. But there was, you know, people have like maybe some pain with it, but this was like, this was like next level pain. It was not TMJ. It was not like my jaw was sore. It was locking up. There was, you know, some pain or tightness. This was like, like nerve pain is one of the most painful things that people can have. So 
and it was not that like we were looking it up and they were it was similar symptoms but it wasn't so um so five months later I had another flare-up and I was living down in San Diego and the pain lasted a lot longer this time and it basically debilitated me because if you can't like move or go outside or I couldn't take a shower because any water touching my face would cause a flare-up I obviously couldn't go to class I mean like why would I go to class like I would just be in so much pain I wouldn't be like interacting with people and I wouldn't be able to explain what's going on so it was horrible so I ended up I couldn't attend one of the classes that I had to go to every day and like it affected my grade a lot. Luckily that was not as an important class, but I ended up dropping a class that semester and um, the other stuff I just got from classmates and, you know, just, you know, some most of my classes that were nutrition related, I could miss essentially and it wouldn't really affect my grade. It was just I wasn't getting any of the material. So that was a downside. Um so I did that. And then during that time, I, you know, my parents were helping me. We were going to see specialists. I went to see oral surgeons. I tried acupuncture. I literally tried anything. And um, most of the people that I went to see said it was TMJ. And it wasn't until February of 2017, so this is now my third flare-up, that I was able to finally see a nerve specialist. And the reason why it took me a while was because, one, my insurance was for up north in Orange County where my mom works so you know when I was living down in San Diego not only was I not able to attend classes but I was also trying to find time to go to um, doctor's appointments and going and seeing these people that could like help me figure out what was going on and so it wasn't until February of 2017 when I was able to see a nerve specialist in Carlsbad and um, you know I you know I had I forget what it was, but anyway, never mind. I'm not even going to talk about that. But anyway, so I went to the nerve specialist and literally the first meeting he was like, so, you know, this is actually really common with people that come to see me. And he told me that it was trigeminal neuralgia. And it was so calming and so like, like I was just so thankful that I was going to see someone that actually knew that what I was talking about, that, that I wasn't the only one. Because when you go on Google and I had found like some, some threads online that were you know, that they were experiencing the same exact thing and they couldn't figure out what it was. And it like some people had mentioned trigeminal neuralgia. And so I would look it up and like, it sounded so extreme. And I was like, well, this is extreme, but I didn't really think it was like that. So I was like, oh my goodness. So finally get to the nerve specialist and he basically told me, um, this is what it is. And there's two things that cause this usually. It's either you have like a tumor or some type of growth that's impeding on your trigeminal nerve at the base of your head or you're having massive inflammation that's causing that blood vessel to become inflamed and irritate the nerve next to it. And so I was just like, oh my gosh, I either have a tumor or just this crazy massive inflammation going on in my body. And I didn't really know the, you know, I thought the tumor as being like way more extreme. But as I began to find out that inflammation was, you know, it was almost like it was a warning sign that I feel like now. Um, looking back that my body was trying to tell me like, yes, this was horrible, but I probably wouldn't have known a lot of stuff that was going on if I hadn't had that pain. So um, it wasn't a tumor and I was given medication. I was given what was called gabapentin, which is an anti-seizure medication to help um, alleviate the pain. And um, for anyone that listens to Joe Rogan, his podcast, he had a guest on, um, Travis Barker. I think he's the, yeah, he's the, um, 
a drummer for Blink-182, and he was actually, I posted it on my Instagram story, but he was talking about how he has it, and it's literally called the, the suicide disease because um, I've heard that people can get it with the nerve in their eye, and a lot of people kill themselves because of that, and I literally was like, that is just like so heartbreaking, but I also completely understand because when I was going through this, like I literally thought that I had some type of disease or something wrong with me where I was going to have this for the rest of my life. And I just remember kept thinking like, I'm not going to be able to have a normal job. I'm not going to be able to live a normal life. I'm not going to be able to do all these things. And like, that was such a scary time in my life. So, um, and I felt like I had honestly hit rock bottom. Like there were so many things going on that, you know, once I had gotten an answer to what my problems were, like you have this certain condition that's due to, um, since I didn't have a tumor, it was obviously inflammation. So getting that answer was, it's so relieving and like, it made me feel like, okay, as long as I have an idea of where to start, I can figure out like what this is and how to get rid of it because that's just the type of person I am. I just didn't even want to think about having to do this or having this for the rest of my life. So I was given gabapentin and it's an anti-seizure medi- medication and it did help, but, um, you know, I remember him meeting with that doctor that one time, him giving me this prescription to have, and then he gave me this packet of um, different levels of gabapentin, like different doses. And he said, the next time this happens, this is, you know, the method that you're going to go about. And then we'll find out what's a good dosage for you that helps really like, you know, remove the pain. And then we'll see if that works. And then if that's not helping you or, you know, that's not, um, you know, it's not doing anything, then, you know, the next step is to get surgery and to like, I don't know if it was remove the nerve or to put something in there to prevent the blood vessel. And I just was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to get like, I'm gonna have to have um, brain surgery. Like, are you serious? So I was very motivated to never have to do this again. And so I was taking the gabapentin and that had its own problems of its own. Um, You know, literally I took it, I would say maybe twice, I think. No, yeah, I only took it one time because once I was um, prescribed that, um, yeah, anyway, I'll get to that, but I was prescribed the gabapentin and then I probably took it for a couple of weeks because it was during that time that I had that nerve pain in, in February of 2017 and ever since then, like, I've always had the hardest time with, like, my mental, um, like, you know, I noticed very quickly that I would be talking and I would just immediately forget everything. I would forget what I was talking about. I couldn't grasp words, like basic words. And it's taken me, I mean, even today, two years later, it's still taken me um, a lot of time to really get that back. And I actually have known people that have had gabapentin prescribed to them for the same exact thing. And they had the same issues. They couldn't Like, it was like they were just forgetting things randomly. They didn't know where they were going. They couldn't remember words. And so still to this day, I have like a hard time sometimes talking out loud, especially with people because I don't know, it's, it's taken me a while. I've gotten way better and I know that it'll eventually go away. But at the time it was so hard because I just, and then I got nervous about talking to people and, you know, being up in front of audiences because I was so scared of, um, you know, forgetting words and stuff like that. So, so that had its own issues of its own by just having medication that I would need to treat this. And second, I didn't even know why I was having this massive inflammation. So that's when I kind of was just like, okay, I need to figure out 
why like what is inflammation like I knew what it was but I needed to figure out like what exactly is my body trying to tell me and how do I get rid of this so that's where I kind of started on this that's where I where I got into um um functional and integrative medicine because I was like I need to find out the root cause of this I need to figure out like why I have inflammation all that kind of stuff so I was doing a lot of research and I found a lot of books and um, one book that I've you know promoted quite a bit is a mind of your own or a mind of yeah, Mind of Your Own by Kelly Brogan. And, you know, that book was just my first introduction to this, you know, integrative medicine, this functional medicine, this um, root cause, um, 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 what would you call it, care of, you know, not just being prescribed a medication, um, conventional medicine, if you will, and rather just trying to figure out things that are affecting my body and you know I've reread the book since then and there's a lot of things that I have you know learned about where I can say well that's not right in her book and that's not right in her book but I was I'm still so grateful for that book because the reason why I picked it up was because in the front it had um the truth about depression and how you can like heal your bodies and I just knew that at that time in my life when I was having all these flare-ups I was just super depressed I had gained I had gained like 40 pounds. I had so many problems. I was, I did not have a good social life. I wasn't doing well in school. I like every aspect of my life, which now when I think about this holistic approach to health, I was not, I was not, um, excelling in any of those areas. And it was just really, um, it was really damaging to my health. So that's where I got onto this, this, um, this path to learning about inflammation and to finding out so much about how our environment and about, you know, I knew about our food, but I still, two years ago, I wasn't necessarily like in, you know, my classes that were really focusing on like, um, you know, managing certain diseases and stuff like that. So there's still a lot that I had to learn. Um, you're always learning new things, but that was kind of when I started getting into integrative medicine and learning about how to fix things from like a root cause because I knew two things like one I did not want to take this medication and two I would not be able to lead a normal life if I have this pain happening every five months and that was really scary for me so that's where I basically um just started learning about inflammation and I'm really excited to teach you guys some of the stuff that I've learned through this podcast and through this specific episode but I will say that this is still like an this this is a I'd say pretty long episode in terms I think it'll be like an hour but there's still a lot more that we could talk about so this is kind of just an introduction um for you know everyone that's wondering what the heck inflammation is and why we should be addressing it so I hope you guys enjoy so when talking about inflammation, we we must first address that inflammation is often found in the pathophysiology of many diseases. Sorry, I might get a little tongue-tied with these words. Also, to start, I'm also going to let you guys know that a lot of this stuff, because what I'm going to plan on doing is I'll have my research articles in the show notes when I use research. So this episode... Um, this, this episode, I will include the, the research articles that I've used, but a lot of this has come from a textbook that I bought during when I was in school, which we used for one of my classes. So um, for anyone wondering where I'm getting this information, I'm getting it from a um, very credible textbook that we use for medical nutrition therapy and disease and stuff like that. So a lot of this information has already been, you know, we wouldn't be using that textbook if if it wasn't, you know, credible and we 
wouldn't be learning about the stuff that's in it. So it's up to date and it's just so just letting you know in case anyone's just like, well, how do you really know this? And like and stuff like that. There's a whole chapter on this. So um, a lot of this stuff gives, it was an outline from this book that I that I used and then I did more um, research in addition to that. So let me just say that first off. Okay. So chronic disease is complex, obviously, and it never involves just one organ or organ system, but it involves underlying physiologic systems that affect the whole organism. So inflammation is particularly relevant to obesity, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, cancer, anxiety, depression, and so much more. And there's the systemic low-grade inflammation, and it can promote a multitude of pathologic and self-perpetuating events like insulin resistance, endothelial dysfunction, and even activation of pathways that lead to tumor growth. So what exactly is inflammation when I'm saying that? Inflammation is this complex biological response of vascular tissue to harmful stimuli, which are like, you know, to things like pathogens, damaged cells, irritants that you're ingesting or that you're around, and it consists of both a vascular and cellular responses. So inflammation is a protective attempt by our bodies to remove injured stimuli and to initiate a healing process that can restore both structure and function. Inflammation can be local or systemic, and it can be acute or chronic. The body's immune system responds to physiologic and metabolic stress by producing pro-inflammatory molecules called adipokines and cytokines. When the immune response is successful, the tissue returns to a state of wellness or metabolic stability, and if many areas of the body's defense system, such as like the gastrointestinal barrier, um, stomach acidity, or skin are compromised, there is a diminishing recognition of self and non-self, which you know, until the body is repaired. So the longer the physiologic injury continues, the greater the loss of the ability to recognize, you know, self and non-self, which is a core value in immunology. And so there's two types of inflammation. There's acute and chronic. Acute inflammation is when you get a cut or an injury and it usually resolves quickly. Chronic inflammation is prolonged inflammation or non-resolving inflammation, and it can lead to a progressive shift in the type of cells present at the site of inflammation and is characterized by a simultaneous destruction and healing of the tissue from the inflammatory process. So before we dive into um, some other things, I just want to discuss some of the benefits behind inflammation and why our body has adapted this way. So inflammation isn't always negative. Um, Our body needs inflammation, like for example, when I was saying the acute inflammatory problems like a cut or injury, and even in um, with exercise, the oxidative stress and inflammation that's produced um, has many benefits. And in fact, there's a lot of research supporting the fact that oxidative stress from exercise is what helps our body adapt and progress. So inflammation is, is an evolutionary adaptation um, that's helped our bodies evolve and survive. But in the past, you know, 50 years, we are exposed to more and more things that can promote um, inflammation and our body isn't able to um, resolve it as quickly. And as we'll find out, there's a lot of factors that go into how our body can um, solve, resolve inflammation. And this leads to chronic inflammation, this low grade, and then it can lead to a faster, um, you know, disease state or faster disease promotion. And another thing that I want to add is that our body is really incredible and can do amazing things to help us mitigate the stress that we endure from everyday life. So 
inflammation from our environment is unavoidable. I don't believe in a total annihilation of inflammation um, because that's not good either. It's just we know that our body is evolving and needs to adapt to this world that we live in. So if we were always trying to figure out how to just completely eliminate everything, I think we would find that in the future our bodies would not, you know, at least in theory, that I feel like our bodies maybe wouldn't as adapt, wouldn't adapt. And so I feel like kind of having this exposure is also good in a way. So, but our body has a threshold that it can take on. Um, I think the issue is really when our body is exposed to so many things that this threshold is surpassed and it limits our body's ability to heal and repair and evolve. So because it's impossible to completely eliminate everything, we must focus on what we can do and what we can participate in that will help um, promote these healthy habits and that can help our bodies mitigate the damage and inflammation while still evolving and progressing. So that's just my little disclaimer because I don't want anyone to get, you know, I, I try to keep a real moderate mindset about how we go about things and I know that there's people on both sides of the issue going oh yeah let's just eliminate all these toxins but at the same time I think that we need to start addressing the fact that we do have a lot of disease that's been much more prevalent than it was you know 50 80 100 years ago and that we need to kind of figure out why and what we can do so how do we know that there's inflammation well, we can measure inflammation in our body, and some examples are the biomarker C-reactive protein high sensitivity, and this has been shown to be one of the strongest single variable predictors of the risk of cardiovascular events. It's a systemic marker of inflammation that's related most often to bacterial infection, trauma, abnormal tissue growth, and it has acute and chronic expression. Strong in Strong evidence indicates that omega-3 fatty acids from fish oil or fish has power anti has powerful anti-inflammatory effect and can suppress these CRPs. Some other um, evaluations that people might use um, is you know the sedimentation rate, which are um, blood cells are measured to see how fast the blood cells can sediment in a period of one hour. Interleukin six or IL-6, it's a protein that's produced by immune cells that regulate or promote an immune response and TNF-alpha, which is a signaling protein, uh, uh, it's a cytokine, I believe, that's involved in systemic inflammation and is one of the cytokines that make up acute phase reaction. So some diseases that are well characterized by these markers include heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. So things that can promote inflammation, um, this is going to be kind of where the chunk of the stuff is, and um, I want to remind you guys that this is kind of just an introduction. There's a lot of things that go into this, and I suggest always um, seeking out help from a registered dietitian that specializes in um, functional and integrative medicine because they're going to have um, more knowledge about these types of things. And if you need help with that, I will link my um, Instagram or email in the show notes where you guys can reach out to me. So first thing is antigens, and these are things that can promote inflammation from chronic exposure. Antigens are usually thought to come from foods to which one is either allergic or sensitive, but they, but it can also be um, things from cosmetics, clothing, inhalants, furniture, household building items, and other substances in the environment like smoke from cigarettes or smog or just other circulating particles. 
So when you ingest antigens from food specifically, they are much more likely to be significant when a person has lost um, this gut barrier integrity and it's, you know, it's called intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And I don't want to get too much into this because there's a whole episode about this, but leaky gut is defined as this increased intestinal permeability. And it's this condition in which you lose this um, barrier essentially through which, you know, we'll talk about in a later episode, but bacteria like bacteria that's bad, toxins, and even um, food particles that aren't broken up all the way can actually like leak through this intestinal wall and get into the bloodstream. And so then our body starts attacking it and that develops these antibodies to it. So you might've heard, you know, there's a rise of all these food. um, I wouldn't say food allergies. Food allergies are different because those are IgE mediated. So it's different than a sensitivity or intolerance. IgE mediated food allergies are much more extreme. Um, But there's this, you know, theory and there's some research going on showing that, you know, people aren't becoming more and more sensitive and and allergic to our foods, but rather there's something else going on that our body is making antibodies and attacking these, um, these food proteins or antigens that are coming in and causing an intolerance to them. So, you know, there's this thought that if we address something that's going on in the gut, we could actually um, improve people that have food intolerances and actually get rid of these things. So um, an example, though, that I like to use of an antigen is maybe someone having a histamine intolerance. And when they consume these histamine rich foods, um, then they can have more inflammation because, you know, some people don't even know that they have a histamine intolerance. I didn't know that I had a sensitivity until I got a genetic test. But um, anyway, I'll explain this. So you naturally produce histamine and there's foods that have you know, histamine because it produces it. So a great example is fermented foods. So um, there's this enzyme called diamine oxidase or DAO, and this enzyme helps us break histamine down. But sometimes people can have a deficiency in this enzyme because of taking certain certain medications. So I, um, I know that if you take ibuprofen or aspirin a lot, it can affect your enzyme function. You might have a gastrointestinal disorder that affects it, or if you're like me, you can have a variant in your gene that prevents this proper functioning of the DAO enzyme. Um, So some examples of foods that increase, and yeah, so alcohol, I think, um, prevents DAO, but I think some people are more susceptible to it. So I know people from Asian descent might have, um, or more likely to, that's why I think they call it the Asian glow, because when they have alcohol, they have a hard time breaking down the histamine and they get this glow in their face. Um, but smoked meat, fermented dairy, shellfish and chocolate are just some examples. I've posted it on my Instagram, um, on inflammation underscore nutrition. If you go down, there's like a list of histamine foods. Um, so there's some that are higher in histamine than others. And of course, there's so many variations with this. That's why I don't suggest anyone go out and self-diagnose. You should always work with a registered dietitian. I'll talk about how to do an elimination diet, which is the gold standard for figuring out if you have an intolerance to foods. But I mean, this could mean, I mean, if you look at the list, there's so many foods. So some people might be sensitive to some, some might not be sensitive to the other. Um, you know, it might, you know, it just depends. And it can also be just from you taking ibuprofen a lot. So you never know. And that's why you always want to seek out a professional that can help you um, go about this. If you think that maybe you have a histamine intolerance or if you do a genetic test and you find out that you have um, a variant in that gene. So another thing too is foods that tend to be pro-inflammatory that I think we hear a lot, you know, anti-inflammatory foods, pro-inflammatory foods. So 
Um, it's not that consuming these foods at all are going to just cause this massive inflammation, but it's more of rather the amount or the percentage of these foods that you're including in your diet, which a Western diet is high in inflammatory foods and is low in anti-inflammatory foods. So that's why people often refer to the Western diet as being this disease-ridden thing, but it really has to do with people um, just consuming a lot of one food and not enough of the other. So foods that tend to be pro-inflammatory. So if you're having a high ratio that's higher in omega-6s over omega-3s, and these omegas compete for receptors. So if you have a diet that's high in omega-6, then you're going to be less likely to take up those omega-3s. And omega-6s are not bad. It's just these are broken down into prostaglandins and pro-inflammatory proteins. So we still need them. And they are found in good foods. But it just becomes a concern when we have um, way too much of the 6s and not enough of the 3s. Saturated fat is another one, which is important for hormone building and cell building, but this also increases our LDL, um, and our LDL, we'll, we'll get into in another thing about saturated fat. I have a whole episode on it because it's really interesting, but essentially, saturated fat, you know, the recommendation is to not have, we should limit our saturated fat as much as possible, and if you have it, it should be no more than 10% of your total calories that are coming in, and saturated fat is found in like red meat, like beef and pork, it's found in dairy products. It's also found in coconut oil, coconut milk, palm oil, and cocoa butter. Um, so it's not only found in animal foods. Vegans can get this as well. Um, so it really should not make up a big portion of it. And um, that's all I'm going to say about this because there's a whole episode on saturated fat. And it's really interesting. And it comes down to um, individual um, variability. So it depends on the type of individual. And I will tell you that there was one really interesting um trial that did saturated fat and actually found that people that are eating high amounts of omega-6s um, but had low saturated fat, it wasn't as bad as the people that were having high saturated fat with moderate amounts of omega-6s. So as we say with the omega-6s, how it's this pro-inflammatory, but really there might be something going on where if you're having a high saturated fat intake and also having that omega-6s, which are pro-inflammatory, it's going to promote this inflammation even more. So we'll get into that in another episode. Sorry, I'm like, you know, seeping in different topics, but it's really exciting. So of course, trans fat, which trans fat is, it was made illegal in I think 2015 or 2016, but I think it just came not too long ago, came into action where it had to be completely removed off the shelf. So I think the only thing that has trans fat now is, um, Oh my gosh, what's that? The margin? It's it's the product that's like the whole purpose of it is to have trans fat, like the hydrogenated oil or whatever. I don't know. So I think that's the only thing. So you should not be having trans fat in any packaged foods that you're getting and you should just <laughs> should not be having trans fat at all. Um, of course, alcohol, as we know, is pro-inflammatory. It's technically a toxin. So um, trying to limit that, not making that be, um, you know, binge drinking every weekend, just not good. And um, sugar and highly refined carbohydrates, um, these, as once again in the saturated fat episode, we actually talk about this a lot. Um, some people are more susceptible to having inflammation be induced from sh refined sugar and refined carbohydrates, so we'll get into that, but everyone pretty much should benefit from reducing their sugar intake. These are just, um, it promotes just an excess of calories. Um, yeah, we'll get into that another time. Also, sugaring, sugar um, can feed certain bad bacteria in your gut. We'll all talk about that. And then, of course, processed foods, um, which in general just have a lot of preservatives and 
there's some research that we'll talk about when we get into this in another episode, um, how preservatives and sugar alcohols, you know, like sucralose and stuff like that, it actually affects, it can mess up our gut um, because these are molecules that we can't break down ourselves and it affects then our gut bacteria, which they have all an important function. So staying away from processed foods, the preservatives, the sugar alcohols, just staying away from that. So yeah, so that's it for pretty much our foods for now. We'll all get into those separate little things in more detail. Then there's genomics, which I'm really excited for the nutrigenomics chapter uh, episode that I'm doing in a couple weeks. So there's genomic testing, our family history, our personal history. These are all gathered during an assessment to help dietitians paint this picture of this biochemical individuality, which flu- influences the response to inflammation. So nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, and epigenetics are relatively new studies are new fields of studies about the way that an individual metabolically interacts with their environment. And I, like I said, I'm going to be doing an episode on this. Super interesting. But just to give you a little look into what it'll be about, there's an enzyme called cytochrome P450 that's essential for the production of cholesterol, steroids, uh, cyclins, and thromboxane. But they're also involved in the hydroxylation of endogenous and exogenous toxic molecules and the detoxification transport of toxins for elimination via the feces and bile, urine, and sweat. So if this enzyme function is suppressed by, you know, poor integrity of the enzyme structure, there's an abnormal pH, um, there's liver inflammation because this happens in the liver, or there's an altered availability of nutrient cofactors, which is important. Or you have a, um, or you have a CYP450 genotype. There's a variant. Then you might possibly have a reduced function of of this enzyme. So there could be a backup of toxins, and there can be an increase in an individual's toxic load. So I can't remember. I think I do have a genetic variation in this, and I have a lot of liver things that I found out, which is, I think is. You don't have to get your your genes tested, but I thought it was really interesting because it did really give you an overall idea of um, how your body kind of, you, you can kind of see where you have more weaknesses. And it was so obvious that I had a lot of more liver things. So that can kind of give me an idea of, okay, what affects the liver? So obviously I know that I'm really, um, I don't do well with alcohol. So like just certain things that I've noticed or like I don't do well with caffeine, all these different things that have, that are um you know, that have to do with the liver and how it breaks down or how it functions. It was really interesting because then it helped me understand a little bit more about maybe why I don't do well with caffeine or, you know, why I have a hard time with alcohol and I have to be careful with it. So just gives you kind of an inlook or an insight. So I really liked that. Um, Another thing, body composition. So there, you know, the higher body fat you have, the more fat you have, obviously. And then the more fat you have, especially visceral adipose tissue, um, the fat can secrete known inflammatory adipokines like resistant leptin, um, adiponectin, (laughs) adiponectin, and tumor necrosis factor alpha, or TNF alpha, as we talked about in the beginning. So these are all things that can contribute to this total inflammatory load. And of course, you know, higher body composition is also related to people having less physical activity, um, a lot of stress, not enough sleep. So, and those are all, of course, pro-inflammatory things as well. So um, this is just kind of a, a note to say like, yes, higher body fat doesn't necessarily give a the best representation of someone's health status, but 
the higher body fat, especially where you carry your body fat. So like for me, I carry it on my waist, which is the place you don't want it. But there's some people that carry it more on their hips, their thighs, their butt, which is considered to be safer. Um, so people like me that have it on their waist or on their stomach, you, you know, that's closer to all your organs. You have a higher risk of cardiovascular stuff. So just something to note. Um, it, it all varies too. This is also a genetic thing. So I, yeah, I'm not going to get into all my personal business, but it's a, it's a, it varies by individual. Um, and then of course our microbiome, which I'll be doing a whole episode on this as well, but, um, 80% of our immune system is in our gut. And so when you have this delicate microbiome community that's in the body and on the outside of the body, and it's disturbed from a healthy baseline, it can become a factor in promoting this inflammation or prolonged inflammation because it affects the way that food is used. Um, It affects the diversity of the bacteria in your gut, and it can also lead to the presence of bad bacteria, um, which we are finding is, is an issue that's becoming more and more common. And that depends on, and, and that bad bacteria could be from so many different things. So this is all something that we have to dive into the later thing. But um, the cause the, the cause of these changes in the patterns of, of the microbiota from healthy to dysfunctional can be influenced by your genetics, your diet, your exposure to environmental toxins, and of course, antibiotic use, which should be avoided if, if possible, because it really does take a, um, take a toll on your gut. Um, hypercoagulation is another thing and this one was kind of interesting when I was reading about it so I guess the coagulation of bodily fluids can create a sluggish and slow environment and that can facilitate the development of chronic diseases because um, when you have um, you know when you have this body fluid viscosity that that stays in one area I guess it creates more pro-inflammatory immune cytokines and chemokines and so things like um, having enough hydration, so enough water, vitamin E, eating enough polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats, and avoiding any, of course, infections or foods that act as antigens. So, um, I, and then some biomarkers of this would be um, blood fibrinogen platelets, a urine, urinary analysis, measurements of specific gravity, and the presence of cloudiness or mucus. So, this one was a little interesting, and I need to look a little bit more into that, but I think it's mostly like, for example, if you imagine, you know, your blood and there's like a bunch of coagulation and it's staying in one spot. It might, you know, there might be more of your immune system trying to attack it or trying to get rid of it. Um, things might be getting oxidized. LDL will get caught in there. Stuff like that. That's what I picture when I read about that. And then, of course, infection. So anytime you have an infection, this is going to raise the level of immune response, um, which means that it'll produce more inflammatory mediators. And of course, this is always exasperated by nutrient insufficiencies and imbalances between pro-oxidant and antioxidant conditions. So anytime you have a bacterial or viral infection, you're going to have inflammation. And so the last thing is stress. The sources of metabolic stress can include injury, infection, um, muscle and skeletal misalignment, which I thought was really interesting. Um, a lack of sleep, emotions, unhealthy diet, smoking, quality of life, or the lack or excess of physical activity. So stress can be a lot of things. And um, when you have a lot of stress, this also increases your nutrient requirements. Um, You know, stress increases it because it depletes them faster. And there's this higher level of oxidative stress. So your body is requiring more nutrients. So Nutrient um, sufficiency is something that we're finding to be really important in, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this in another episode, but I mean, 
our nutrients, our micronutrients and macronutrients. So macronutrients are like our protein, carbs, fat, and our micronutrients are all of our vitamin and minerals. And these are literally things that go into our body to help our body run properly. So if you don't have enough of it, you know, we're still finding out just, you know, what exactly is going on when we don't have enough. But I mean, it's, I mean, if you think about it, if you need something to be able to do a next step, um, and you don't have that, it's really going to affect the way that your body is functioning. And over time, you know, you, you never know. So um, that will get into another episode as well. So how do we prevent and reduce inflammation? And this is kind of kind of going to kind of summarize everything and, and talk and summarize what I kind of just talked about. But, you know, anti, um, identifying the antigens or things that you're sensitive to, whether that's household items you know, for me, I'm allergic to basically animals. So I have to make sure that if I'm going over to someone's house that, you know, they don't have cats because I'm really allergic to cats, but I'm also sensitive to dog hair. If they have dog hair everywhere, um, just, just being aware of things that bug you and things that aren't good. Cause it's just going to promote some inflammation, um, food sensitivities and moving away from a Western diet of, you know, processed meats and foods, foods that have added sugar, um, things that have refined oils, refined carbs, um, you know, eating a lot of um, highly refined breads and pastas and choosing more whole grain things. So um, Ezekiel bread's a great bread that's a whole grain sprouted bread, eating, maybe switching from white um, flour pastas to lentil pastas, um, reducing your stress. Of course, everyone, you know, when you say reduce stress and then you find out all these things that contribute to stress, you're going, where do I even begin? But, um, getting as much exercise as you can, getting enough sleep and good sleep at that, eating pre and probiotic foods, getting enough fiber. This is all things that we haven't really touched up on yet, but I will explain why these things are so important in other episodes. And we'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. But, um, and another thing that I consider to be a holistic natural approach to reducing inflammation is looking into cbd oil um research there's so much research backing up how powerful cbd oil is in anti-inflammatory um, purposes and i know for me personally when i was having my trigeminal neuralgia my dad would get me cbd oil and would get me cbd products and it helped so much it was one of the things that when i was at the end of my episodes and i was going back to class i would just use that to just like just to be able to like sit in class and not, you know, freak out and stuff like that. And so a brand that I use that I highly, highly recommend is Agrizin Life Science. I'm going to put all their information in the show notes, but they are a small business located in Indiana and they produce organic high quality CBD oil and they use clean CO2 extraction and their CBD oil has many different cannabinoids. So um, not all CBD oils or CBD companies have that. So when you have a you know, I'm going to do an episode about CBD oil as well. But um, when you have a CBD oil that has a lot of different cannabinoids, it's going to help with a lot of other things because they all do different stuff. So um, I mean, from anxiety to depression to, you know, helping people alleviate pain from cancer treatment to um, almost all anti-inflammatory or inflammatory issues, um, CBD oil can help a lot. So this is something that I totally am a supporter of and believe everyone should look into a natural, holistic um, way of, you know, helping, you know, with pain or anything that even if you don't have pain or you don't have, you may not even know that you have inflammation going on. 
CBD oil can really, really help you. Um, just anything that's going on that you don't even know about um, at the end of the night, you know, you can use it before you go to bed. It'll really help with, um, you know, helping you sleep at night. When you take a bath, I like to use some as well. It's so nice. So um, I was able to get a discount code and I'll put that in the show notes, but it's my first name, Pajali10. And um, yeah, so I'll put that in the show notes and you'll get 10% off. And I think... Um, you know, if you have any questions about that specific brand, you can always look up their website. They have um, a lot of awesome products, and um, I'll be doing a whole episode on why this CBD oil is so amazing, and you guys should definitely go support the small business. And the last thing for this, for reducing inflammation and preventing it, I said all these things, you know, identifying the antigens, reducing stress, exercise, all that stuff, but the last thing that's the most important thing is working on one thing at a time. I can't tell you how long it's taken me to figure out every little part of my life, you know, this holistic approach, you know, my social life, my exercising, stress reduction, all these different things. It's literally taking me and it's still taking me time to really figure this out two years later. So I think in this, you know, society or this day and age, we want everything now. We want to lose weight now. We want to, you know, we just want to get to this point in three months. And the thing is, is that's not going to happen. And it's not realistic to expect that of yourself. You know, the way that I like to think about it, think about it is you're going to be alive, hopefully in three, five years, right? So why don't you work on it over time? Because you don't want to just start doing something for three months, not able to stick to it, and you stop. And then you do this for the next three to five years going on this roller coaster going, I'm going to do this, and then you don't, I'm going to do this, and then I, you don't. So really focus on one goal at a time. And, you know, maybe you start off going and writing a list of everything that you're wanting to, you know, I know that these foods are high in my diet. I know that I don't exercise enough. Or, you know, maybe you have something else going on that you don't exercise. For example, maybe you like have a lot of back pain or you have something else going on. That's what you should address first. Why do I have back pain? Do I need to go to a chiropractor? Do I need to um, start off slow? Do I need to get a personal trainer? These are the ways that you implement successful habits into your life. You, you can't imagine or you can't expect yourself to just apply all these things and to have them all, you know, next week you're doing everything. That's not going to work. You really have to go and start by educating yourself, you know, figuring out yourself first. What do I need? What do I struggle with? And then pick one thing and work through it. And don't pick another thing until you feel like you've done it for 30 days and you've been able to stick with it, and then you go work on another thing. And that has been literally the most helpful thing I've ever done is just do one thing. For From from February of 2017, when I had this, it was my very, fa- very last nerve pain, by the way. I have not had nerve pain since I went to that nerve specialist. And um, yeah, I'm really proud of that. So as soon as I was told what it was, I said, I'm going to figure this out and I'm not going to let this happen. And I have not had one episode since I know that it can come back, but I have made it my goal to work on every little thing that I can and to be forgiving of myself and to know that it's not always going to be, I'm not always going to be perfect. I try to, you know, on my Instagram, I try to show people like, Hey, I was craving ice cream. I got ice cream. I'm going out to eat this. Like life isn't about trying to just achieve this level of perfection. It's about really, wanting to change your life around and figuring out how you can do this in, you know, steps that will help you reach a goal. And you may not get everything down. You may not improve on everything, but 
if you're listening to your body and you're asking yourself the right questions and you are actively trying to improve your life, I think those are the most important behaviors to living a healthy life. You know, not being afraid to go, there's something wrong and I want to, I want to know how to fix this. So that's my two cents on that. Um, now we can get into some nutrients that, um, are related to inflammation. So, um, first things first, do not take any supplements of any vitamins just because of what I was talking about today. The number one thing that you should, or not the number one thing, the first thing that you should do is always get your blood tested. You should always find out what your levels are. Um, just as there's dangers with having too little, there's dangers with having too much. And it oftentimes you'll find that the symptoms are the same. So if you I just really want to emphasize that because I know people that will just go and be like, okay, like vitamin D is great. So let me take a bunch and that is not good. So always go get your blood tested. You should be able to go to your doctor and ask for a full blood test. And I think there's another company that I need to figure out what the name of that is. I'll look it up. I'll put it in the show notes if I've found it. And they give you like a full list. They will send you the results so you can look at it. And I think that they'll, they'll, it'll have also like, this is good. This is low, um, high, you know, stuff like that. So make sure that you, um, get your blood tested before you take any supplements. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is vitamin D. Vitamin D functions as a pro-hormone with multiple roles, including hormone and immune modulation, anti-inflammatory and anti-tumor effects, and apoptosis support. This suggests that vitamin D is able to physiologically contribute to the regulation of all immune responses by means of the vitamin D receptor expressed in the nucleus of these cells. Epidemiologic and genetic and basic studies indicate a potential role of vitamin D in the pathogenesis of certain systemic and organic organ <laughs> organ specific autoimmune diseases. Vitamin D is made up in the skin upon exposure to UV sunlight or artificial rays, as well as obtained by dietary sources like fatty fish, fish eggs, organ meats, egg yolk, and mushrooms. The past decade dec- I feel like I just had a British accent right there. I'm going to leave this in the the podcast episode. I'm not going to edit that out. The past decade has spotted attention on an apparent global epidemic of low vitamin D status without a known cause. Many chronic diseases are associated with increased prevalence of lowered vitamin D levels as vitamin D25OH, which is the level that they measure, vitamin D levels fall below 30 nanograms per milliliter. Recommendations to test for 25-OH vitamin D and supplement vitamin D3 are becoming more common to increase blood levels to a goal of 50 to um, 40 to 50 nanograms per milliliter. And I think it's actually, you want it between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter. Um, also, vitamin A and vitamin D have a relationship. Um, so vitamin A is retinol, and it's been shown that... Um, when you test, this is also what's important to have a registered dietitian who was going to know about these things, but um, you need to make sure that you're testing vitamin A and vitamin D because oftentimes these are, um, my gosh, I can't think of the word, but if vitamin A is high, you'll find that vitamin D is low. And if vitamin, vitamin D is high, vitamin A is low. So if you're taking like vitamin A supplements, that's not, I mean, first off, you shouldn't be taking supplements unless you know that you need it. And two, um, there's interactions between certain um, micronutrients. So one might be affecting the status of the other. So just an important thing to know. Um, magnesium is another really important thing. Vitamin D and magnesium, I will say, are like two 
some of the most important things that are always talked about when it comes to inflammation because one, or well, one, it's interesting because both of these don't refine that most of the population is deficient in these and um, it's, and they're involved in many um, processes in our body, especially magnesium. So magnesium is involved in more than 300 identified enzyme systems in our metabolism and it's also the key partner um, or the counterpart of calcium. So magnesium is like the relaxing part and then calcium is like the contracting part. So they function in balance and a healthy metabolism. Magnesium is also inversely related to the systemic inflammatory C-reactive protein blood values. That's the marker that we talked about in the beginning. The potential benefit, the potential beneficial effect of magnesium intake on chronic disease may be at least in part explained by its inhibition of inflammation. And there was a study done, um, in between 19, 1999 and 2000 that study uh, that revealed that 60% of the U.S. population doesn't consume inadequate, consume, oh my gosh, U.S. population consumes inadequate dietary magnesium, which, w- which is, magnesium is usually found in vegetables and whole grains. So, um, we're not probably getting enough of those, which I can tell you that we're not. So low, low dietary magnesium intake has been related to several health outcomes, including, um, inflammatory processes and metabolic processes like hypertension, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and even cancers like colon and breast cancer. And magnesium also requires the microenvironment of other essential nutrients, especially calcium and zinc. Dietary intake of chlorophyll-rich vegetables, nuts and seeds, and whole grains can provide adequate magnesium if digestion and absorption are functioning well. So eating a lot of more whole plant-based foods would be the best way to get more magnesium in your diet. I'm always going to promote getting these nutrients, not from supplements, but from whole foods. How can we change your diet to include more of these foods that will give you um, these nutrients? Another important thing is zinc. Um, You know, zinc is also, um, it's important in 300 enzymes, just like magnesium, especially in inflammatory processes. Um, intracellular zinc is required for cell signaling within the intestinal tissue triggered by inflammatory cytokine TNF alpha. Super interesting. And zinc is found in meat, seafood, and legumes. It's also found in nuts and dairy. And the nutrient partner of zinc is copper. So whenever you're assessing the zinc status, you should always be looking at the copper status as well. Another important thing is methylation, which we will be getting into this into another episode. So, um, just knowing that methylation is needed through all parts of our metabolism and there's methyl factor nutrients um that were that are needed to promote this healthy methylation and what's of particular important importance for this is the b complex vitamins because they work synergistically and are critical to this methylation process and methylation is important because it regulates our dna expression so a methyl group is added to a gene which can either turn on or turn off specific genes and methylation is important for dna production and regulation neurotransmitter production um, detoxification, I know that's very important, um, histamine metabolism, estrogen metabolism, fat metabolism, eye health, and like so much more. And so um, some nutrients that um, are shown to be the most rate limiting when these are insufficient are folate, B6, B2, and B12. And um, there's a whole part I'm doing on the Nutrigenomics episode about folate, um, having to do with this genetic variation called MTHFR. So we'll get into that in the other episode, but super interesting. 
And then, of course, our microbiome, um, you know, medical nutrition therapy recommendations um, for supporting a healthy gut is by increasing fermented foods. Of course, if you have a histamine intolerance, though, this might vary because histamine or fermented foods can have a high histamine um, um, level. Um, lowering our intake of pro- uh, lowering our intake of processed foods, avoiding any gastrointestinal irritating foods and any known antigens. Um, these are just like some of those basic things, but are so beneficial to supporting our healthy gut and also you uh, therapy therapeutic use of functional foods so like pre and probiotics and supplements if they're needed um, can be used to restore our gut function and reduce inflammation and of course you should always be testing um, you know getting blood tests done to see what your um, nutrient levels are um, if you can afford it getting genetic testing and I will get into that in the nutrigenomics episode about how to go about that Um, yeah, so just really important for that. And then of course we talked about our lifestyle. So, you know, making sure that you're getting enough sleep and you're getting good sleep, um, that you're getting enough physical activity, that you're not smoking, um, cigarettes, um, you know, trying to reduce your environmental toxin, um, trying to manage stress, you know, making sure that you're having good social relationships, all that kind of stuff that I talked about in this holistic approach to health. Um, and, um, I mean, We will be talking about, you know, sleep and, you know, your circadian rhythm and how that affects, you know, the way that we should be eating and how it differs by individuals, you know, why physical activity is so beneficial and how we can, um, we can maximize our benefits from physical activity through nutrients. We'll all be talking about toxin loads because I know that we're toxic and toxin load have become these buzzwords, but toxins are real. (laughs) So we'll talk a lot about that and how, um, making sure that you have enough micronutrients actually is really one of the most best it was one of the best things to protect yourself from environment from toxins as long as you're giving the body your body the fuel that it needs to run properly and do these functions that our body was created to do um, the more likely you are to mitigate a lot of this inflammation so that's all I have for you guys today on inflammation. I hope that this was a very informative and helpful introduction to um, all the types of things that are going on in our body and all the, the awesome things that we're going to learn about more in depth. Um, I really appreciate you if you've gotten to the end of this episode and if you enjoyed this episode or find this to be helpful for anyone that you may know, please take a screenshot, post to your social media and tag me at inflammation underscore nutrition or, you know, text it to one of your family members. Um, and don't be afraid to reach out if you really are wanting to learn more about this. I can um, put together maybe some resources for you guys. And if you go to my website, which I also include in the show notes, holisticlivingnutrition.com, you guys can subscribe to my mailing list where I'm going to start providing um, all the tools that you guys need um, in addition to these episodes where you guys can actually um, start to take your health into your own hands and don't feel like you need to be paying um, a ton of money for things that you guys can find out on your own. And this is information that you can use for the rest of your life. And I think it's one of the most powerful things. So thank you so much for listening and I hope you guys enjoy.